0: Friends, pray with me. God and Father, as we turn now to study your word, I pray that you would be near to us, speaking to us by your Holy Spirit, and growing up our hearts in faith and faithfulness. Pray that you would be with me, though I am a sinner, as I preach your word, and be with all of us, though we are sinners, as we sit under its authority. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we have been preaching for almost seven months now through the book of Revelation. And we have dealt with some hard texts and had some really good discussions. But the text that you just heard this morning, while you might not realize it, is actually one of the most debated texts in the entire book of Revelation. So that means that our sermon is going to be a little bit different than normal. Different in two ways. One is that this is a sermon where we're going to have to do some work to really dig into the text and understand the different views of it and wrestle with it. There's going to be a little bit more of the the hard work and a little bit less of the illustrating and applying, although we are going to apply it to our lives after we do that work. So it's different in that way. And then it's also going to be different because, like we said, this is a text about which Christians disagree in terms of how we should read it. And in order to talk about how to apply it, we really are going to have to reach some conclusions and form some opinions about how we think that we should read it. And that's different because normally in preaching, what the things that I try to focus on are the things that all Christians or most Christians are agreed about, those core sets of beliefs. But that said, even though this will be a sermon where we are going to look at those secondary things about which Christians should disagree, let me just say it is worth, first of all, wrestling with those things and having those discussions. And it's worth it in particular because God put this stuff in the Bible. God did not only put the super clear stuff in scripture, he also put things that we have to ponder and wrestle with. And he knows better than we what we need to process through. And so bear that in mind as we dive into the text. But that said, here's what we're going to do this morning. Basically, we're just going to do three things. First, we're just going to walk through this text and note the features of it so that we know what we're talking about. Then I'm going to explain to you kind of the two main ways that people interpret this text. And I'm going to explain to you what I think is the right way to read this text. And then we're going to talk about applying it to our lives and what it means for us to live in light of what this says and what the Bible says. All right, that's the plan. So first, we're just going to talk about what this text is about. And the thing this text is about is overarchingly... This thousand years, which people call the millennium, which just means a thousand years, and I will use that word. But first, let's just ask, what does this text say about the millennium? And we see a couple of features of it. The first thing we see is that in this thousand years, Satan is bound. If you start reading in verse one, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So, Satan, the dragon who is featured throughout Revelation, we are told in this millennium that he is bound and chained. But it might make sense for us to ask, what does that mean that he's bound? And we're told that in the next verse. In verse three, it says that he was thrown into the pit, and the angel shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So Satan is bound, specifically in the sense that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And what that's alluding to is this idea, especially in the Old Testament, you have this theme that Israel is this called out people of God, and they are a nation. And God is at work in other nations, and he is the king of other nations, and he's drawing other nations to himself. But Those other nations are pictured specifically in the Old Testament as sort of the dominion of Satan, and he sort of has sway there over against the people of God. And so that's the thing that's changing, that Satan is being bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. All right, that's the first feature. Second of all, we also see that the saints are made alive. The saints live and reign with Christ. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the souls of those who are faithful to Jesus Christ, and especially we see the martyrs being called out, they live and reign with Jesus for a thousand years, and that life is pictured as a sort of resurrection. Verse 5. It says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, so we have this language, the first resurrection, the second death, and we might wonder what that's all about. And The first resurrection we're actually going to save because, as you'll see, that's one of the things whose interpretation people disagree about. But we know what the second death is. We're told later in our passage. It says in verse 14 that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the second death is hell. It is God's eternal judgment. Those who share in the first resurrection have no fear of God's judgment coming on them. All right keep going with me. So we've got those two features of the thousand years, and then at the end of the thousand years, we see that there is a final conflict. That's the third feature of it. If you pick up in verse 7, it says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. So Satan and the nations rise up against the people of God, and there's this final battle But we should note that that final battle is not really much of a battle. We noticed this in the last chapter too, and it seems to describe the same event. But if you read in verse 9 here, it says that the nations marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. So they rise up, but the final battle is really just God coming and finally judging and defeating them. And then we have the final judgment. That's the last feature. After this thousand years, there's a final judgment of all humankind. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So this is God the Father himself. It's evoking back to the images of the great throne in chapters 4 and 5. But he is coming to earth and... The world itself seems to pull back and reveal him. And then here's what happens. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now notice something important there. It's um, everyone is being judged, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And these books are opened, books that seem to represent sort of the things that each person has done in their lives— But notice how the judgment works. It isn't that you read what's written in each book and then pass judgment. It's that the books were opened in judgment, and then everyone whose name was written in the book of life is saved. Verse 15 spells that out. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's worth stressing that here. That's not going to feature as much in our discussion of the uh, thousand years, but we should recognize that God's judgment is not like karma. It is not the way I think a lot of us imagine it, which is that, you know, there's some better people and some worse people, and God kind of tallies up the goodness and the badness from these books and decides who is going to be saved. Rather, what's happening is the idea seems to be that in each book, in the book of each of our lives, there is more than enough evil by which for us to be judged and condemned. But those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, those who God has mercifully saved those people are saved anyway. So what's making the difference in this judgment is God's grace, not how wonderful people were. But that said, that's the final judgment, and it's the end of our vision. So just to review, we have this picture of a thousand years, a millennium, and during this millennium, Satan is bound in his ability to deceive the nations, and during this millennium, Saints are made alive with Christ and reign with him and at the end of this thousand years There's a final conflict and then the final judgment and then after that as we'll read Next week is the new heavens and new earth. All right Now for the debate and I gotta say I'm gonna try to keep this as simple as I can So that you can follow along with it. I could make this much more complicated, but basically The question is this that thousand years is that describing a future period of time Or is it describing our present age? Let me describe and explain each of those views. First of all, the idea that it's a future period of time. I'm going to give you the fancy theological words for these. This one is called premillennialism. Pre meaning before, because it says that we are living in the age before the millennium. And so in that view, here's how the future works. We right now are in the church age. And at the end of this age, at some point, Jesus comes back to earth. And what he does is he sets up an earthly political kingdom. And those Christians that had died before Jesus comes back, they are raised bodily and they rule over this political kingdom with Jesus. So they're resurrected, but there's also people who are not yet resurrected who are living mortal lives on the earth at the same time. And that's a mixture of non-Christians and people who might become Christians in that time. And then... Um, I should say, too, that thousand years, neither of you holds that it has to be exactly a thousand years. Everyone understands that in scripture, a thousand years means a long time. But for a long time, Jesus has this political kingdom. And then at the end of that, there's this rebellion and this final battle. And then everyone who hasn't yet been resurrected at the beginning of the thousand years gets resurrected at the end of the thousand years. And there's a final judgment. And then the new heavens and new earth. Got all of that? Jesus returns. Christians are resurrected. There's this earthly political kingdom, and then there's this second resurrection, and then there's the final judgment. That is premillennialism. Now, let me just give a historical note. That premillennial view is the more common view in our time and place, meaning 21st century America. If you grew up in a 20th century American evangelical church and you got taught about the end times, this is probably the view that you were taught. It is not the most common view historically— that's going to be the other view that we discuss. But in the 19th century, a set of things happened that in Britain and the United States, this became by far the more common view. But that said, let me explain the other view. Premillennialism holds that this thousand years is the future. Amillennialism is the view that, um, that understands it as instead describing our present age. A just means not, and so what it's saying is that there's not a future millennium. So millennialism. And in amillennialism, many of the descriptions of this passage are understood to be about our age right now as the church. So Satan is bound in this age. In terms of his ability to deceive the nations. Note that doesn't mean that Satan doesn't do anything, but it just means that before Jesus's resurrection, the nations were pictured as sort of the dominion of Satan and Israel was the singular nation. And now as the gospel is going out to all the nations and people of every tribe and tongue and language are being gathered in, the understanding is that Satan is bound in that sense that he's no longer able to keep that from happening. And in this age, millennialism would say we are alive with Christ, not meaning physical resurrections, but rather spiritual life, our new birth that we receive from Jesus when we become believers. And this one might be especially strange to some people because it does use the language of resurrection, but we should note that that kind of talk is actually pretty common in the New Testament. Consider this, from Colossians 3, Paul says, "...since then you have been raised with Christ." Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Or here's Jesus speaking the same way in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So right now, amillennialism would hold those things are true of us. And then all that happens at the end, there is maybe a kind of final future conflict and rebellion against God, although exactly how that looks, different people imagine differently. And then Jesus returns, and Satan is defeated, and the dead are physically raised in a single resurrection, and then there's the final judgment. So at the end, there's just this one set of events. There isn't a kind of millennium in between that include the resurrection of everybody at one time, the final judgment, and then after that, Jesus reigning in the new heavens and new earth. That is amillennialism. Now stop. I realize that you guys are all over the place when I describe that. So some of you are not really that interested in any of these discussions, and you're wondering when we get to the application. And if that's you, we're going to get there, but this is important. Others of you maybe have very strong opinions on this, and some of you might even be kind of shocked to learn that there's more than one view, because some of you might have been raised with a very clear idea that there's only one way to read this. And um, for all of us, then, let's take a deep breath. That's the kind of discussion. I'm gonna tell you which one I think is right, although again, I'm doing that noting that Christians disagree, but then we're gonna talk about why I think it matters and how it shapes how we live. You might've been able to guess it, even though I tried to be fair in the way that I described the two views, but I think that the second view, millennialism, is a better way to read and understand this passage. And let me just give you three reasons why I think that's true. One is that if there is a future premillennial reign of Jesus on the earth, this is the only passage in the Bible that clearly teaches it. It's the only one. Now, there are other places in the Bible, if you're premillennial, that you might then read as being about that premillennial reign. But the only place where it's really clearly laid out is here in Revelation. Now, that doesn't disprove it but it does weigh against it, especially because in many other places in scripture, the stuff that's split up by that thousand years is spoken of as a singular event. Throughout both the Old and New Testament, we have this image of the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is the day that includes the resurrection of everyone, and the final judgment, and Jesus coming to reign on the earth. They're all kind of included in that day, and it might be That we need to actually understand that day as split up, separate things with a thousand years in between. But I don't think that that is a very convincing idea. All right? So that's one. Two, my second issue that I think makes amillennialism a better reason is that premillennialism undercuts the final judgment. It undercuts God's final judgment. And here's what I mean. The idea in scripture is that there is this great white throne that we all appear between to be judged and have the verdict of whether we are in Christ or not declared. But if believers get resurrected and then there's a thousand years where they're living with other people who are not resurrected those people who were resurrected at the beginning of the thousand years are not in any meaningful way being judged at the end. The verdict, in a sense, has already been cast for them because we know that they are in Christ and have been raised. And you get a lot of this oddity, too, of what does it mean for some people to have still mortal bodies of this age and other people to have glorified, resurrected bodies of the age to come living side by side. So that's two issues. And then the third issue is that I think that premillennialism undercuts a proper biblical hopefulness about this age. What tends to happen is you have this middle period between this age and then the new heavens and new earth, and all of the hopeful themes that scripture gives about this age tend to get shoved into the millennium in a way that makes us not feel like they apply to us in the present. And that's the point I want to camp out on, because it's why I think all of this matters. But first, again, like I said at the beginning, I know this is an issue about which Christians disagree, And if you hold the other view, that's fine, and I am glad to be a brother of yours, and I would love to visit about this more. But that said, the reason I think this matters is because of the way it shapes our attitude about the world, the way our view of the end shapes our attitude about the present. And here's the big idea. Here's what I mean. I think that if we understand Scripture rightly— then the kingdom of God is present in this age. That right now, we are in the age where the kingdom of God is advancing and filling the earth. Let me show you a couple of other Bible passages. The first one is from Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come to it and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So notice the nations are being gathered in and they are being taught to walk in the paths of God and and he's talking about the last days when he describes that. And if you remember earlier in Revelation, we discussed how the last days in Scripture is a shorthand for the days that we are in and happen in since Jesus rose from the dead. But then he goes on and describes it in even more striking terms. Verse 4, Isaiah says, "...he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks." Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So we have this image of peace coming to the world, a peace coming that can even transcend the sorts of divisions that nations have between each other and that ethnic groups have against each other. Peace is coming to the world. And the question I want to ask is when does that start to happen? When does that start to happen? Many Christians have been trained to assume that that is only about the future. That right now the world is doomed and everything is terrible, but someday, after Jesus comes back, in some future millennium, things can start to change and God can actually be glorified in the nations and the nations can actually start to serve him and peace can start to grow on the earth. Except notice... When Isaiah said, this is happening in the latter days. Which, like we said, normally is a way of talking about this time that we are in, not the time after Jesus returns. And indeed, the New Testament really sounds this hope of the nations being gathered in regularly. For example, in Colossians 1, Paul is able to say, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood the grace of God. So he's saying, this is the age where that is starting to happen. Now, we might say, wait a minute, what about all the bad stuff in the world, right? What about the wars and conflicts? What about opposition to the gospel? And those are good questions. So let me give three clarifications, all trying to stress what we mean when we say this is the age that that is starting to happen. The first clarification is that the kingdom comes progressively. It isn't an all-at-once sort of thing. Paul, in Colossians 1, talked about how the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, Jesus uses that same language to talk about the kingdom. For example, in Matthew 13, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom starts out as a little seed, but when it is planted in the ground which is probably an image of Jesus' death, it begins to grow, and it grows larger and larger until it is a great tree. The kingdom grows progressively. Second, a second clarification, is that the kingdom is always opposed. Its growth is always opposed by the world, and there will always be challenges. Earlier in Matthew 13, where Jesus uses several growth images for the kingdom, he uses another image where he says that a farmer goes and he sows wheat in this field, for a harvest, and then an enemy comes, and that enemy sows weeds in the field, and when this is discovered, what the farmer says is, let's just let them both grow up together until the time of harvest, and then we will come and harvest the wheat and destroy the weeds. And in that parable, uh, the weeds represent opposition and those that are opposed to the kingdom, and the wheat represents the kingdom of God, and there is growth in the kingdom of God again, but there's also growth in the opposition. It is not until the farmer comes in the end that it's sorted out. And that explains why this age can on the one hand be a time when the kingdom is growing, and on the other hand be a time when there is still suffering and struggle for the church. We have this idea that if the kingdom was growing and we were in this hopeful age, that it should all be a piece of cake, and everything should just go right all the time. And that is not scripture's idea. The kingdom grows in the midst of persecution, The kingdom grows even as it faces opposition, it grows as it is battered, and at times some areas of it even come under judgment and seem to shrink, but the Spirit continues to move the gospel to other areas, and there is growth and revival and renewal over time. So that's two clarifications. And then the third one is that the kingdom will not be fully realized until Jesus comes back. There's an already and a not yet to our hopefulness. All of these promises find their fullest fulfillment when Christ returns. But they are starting to be fulfilled now, even as we're waiting for him. I mean, look, just think about it like this. Let me show you three maps. Here's the first map. This is how far Christianity had spread at the end of the second century. So like 150, 200 years after Jesus, which is basically the Roman Empire. Now, here's a map of Christianity in the 13th century. All right. Now, on the one hand, you see part of North Africa has actually um, ceased to be meaningfully Christian because of the spread of Islam. But you can also see the churches reaching down into Central Africa and covering all of Europe and stretching into parts of India and China. And then here's a map of global Christianity today. The kingdom is growing and spreading. Now, here's the question I want you to consider. Think about those three maps and the way you see that growth. What do you think... The world will look like if Jesus waits another thousand years before he returns. He could come back tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. But what is your expectation for the future if Jesus waits for a thousand years? Do you think that things are only going to be as far as they are today? Do you think that somehow it's just going to get worse and worse, even though the, for the last 2,000 years we've seen it grow and reach the nations? Both scripture and history should make us instead have great hope that the gospel will continue to spread, and the kingdom will continue to grow. So that's the big idea. And then as we close, I just want to speak to what that means for our lives and how it should shape us and help us live as Christians. It is a basic fact of our humanity that our motivation to do something will increase or decrease based on whether we think we can succeed. Our motivation to do something will increase or decrease based on whether we think we will see success. Think about children. Maybe the most toxic thing you can do to a child is to tell them that they will never succeed. To tell them that they are stupid and unintelligent, that they will never amount to anything. When you tell a child that, guess what happens? They lose their motivation in life. They don't work hard. And the reason is because you've convinced them that even if they did, they wouldn't see success. What I want to suggest is that we have done exactly that to many Christians in the church. Here's the message that I hear from many churches. We say, Christianity is in decline and people are just not interested in Jesus anymore. We say the world is getting worse and worse. It's going to hell in a handbasket and we faithful few have to huddle down. We say the poor and helpless are going to stay poor and helpless and there's nothing we can do about it. Everything is terrible and it's just going to get worse. That's the narrative we tell. And then those same churches do try to encourage people to do the things scripture calls them to. They do say, share the gospel, and work for good, and care for the poor. It isn't that they don't want people to do those things, but the problem is they tell a narrative of defeat, and then they tell people that they're supposed to go obey anyway, and that just destroys their motivation, and it destroys their hope, but the good news and the point of this whole discussion is to say that this is the age of hope, and of growth, and of progress, and of real victory for the kingdom of God which the more we believe it, the more motivated we will actually be to do the things that God calls us to do. Because it means that the world's obstacles and its brokenness and the opposition and struggle we face are not stronger than the advance of the kingdom of God. That neighbor or friend or relative of yours who seems so far from Jesus, their rebellion is not stronger than the advance of the kingdom of God. They are not beyond the reach of his grace and the powerful calling of the Holy Spirit. That issue in our community, that problem that we see that is causing people pain and we wish we could see challenged and fixed, that is not stronger than the advance of the kingdom of God. It is not beyond the peace and love that we as Christians are called to show. That sin you're struggling to defeat, it is not stronger than the advance of the kingdom of God. That cultural change or political challenge that we feel threatened by, it is not stronger than the advance of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here and it is growing in this age. We are a part of it. We are still waiting and longing for it to be fulfilled when Jesus returns, but in this age, Satan has been bound and no longer has power over the nations. We are reigning with Christ, made alive with him, and the second death and judgment have no purchase on our souls. We live in an age of hope and promise, not one of defeat, just waiting for some future age where we can start to see the kingdom grow. We're to close with this image. I mentioned thinking about the spread of the gospel if Jesus waits to come back for a thousand years. Just as the kingdom has been growing for two millennium, what will happen if Jesus waits another millennia before he returns? I don't know the details, but here's what I suspect. Chinese communism, it won't stop the growth of the kingdom. Already the cracks are showing there. In 1980, there's 6 million Christians in China. Today, there's like 70 million or more. Christianity in China is growing significantly faster than the Communist Party in China is growing. Islam will not stop the growth of the kingdom. I long for the day when the passion of many of the Middle Eastern friends I have is being used to build up the church. And Arab missionaries are evangelizing Europe and the United States with their zeal and passion. And speaking of the United States, Western secularism and materialism will not be able to stop the growth of the kingdom. Europe, and to some extent the U.S., has been under God's judgment for the way we've confused Jesus with worldly power and success. And the church here is struggling, even as it is booming in Africa and Asia and South America. But the kingdom is growing, and that secularism and materialism will fall just as surely as any other world system that sets itself up against the kingdom of God. Now look, I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying any of that in that way. But what I'm saying is that that kind of vision should be our expectation in this age because that is the hope that we have in Jesus. The more we believe that, the more we embrace that hopeful vision of the kingdom, the more motivation and courage we will find to serve Jesus's kingdom where we are today. Friends, now let's turn to the Lord in prayer. If you would pray with me, O Creator and Father God, we give you thanks that your kingdom is coming and that it has come. We give you thanks that King Jesus has come and established his rule and authority in his life and in his resurrection. And that right now he sits at your right hand, Father, and reigns from heaven over all of the earth. We give you thanks, Lord, that we have been made citizens of that kingdom through the grace of Jesus Christ, purchased for us in his cross and secured for us in his resurrection, that as we turn from our sin and trust in him, that we are made citizens and subjects and sons and daughters of the king. Father, I pray that your kingdom would be on the move in the world. I pray right now that it would be on the move, even if so much of the world is facing the challenges of the coronavirus and lockdowns and quarantines, Lord. Let this time of hardship be a time of, of spiritual hunger and awakening. Build up your church in this season and let us be agents of love and peace, caring for our neighbors and showing the world what it means to have a hope that transcends death, and a fearlessness in the face of material loss. Lord, help us to be agents of that kingdom change, and we pray that you would bring it to bear in our lives and in our communities here. We pray that you would bring it to bear in our families and households. We pray that every tongue might lift you up as Lord and that peace and godliness might reign in our communities and the places that we live. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our great King. And then, friends, Join me in the Lord's Prayer as we hear it prayed by some of our smallest members.